Housing and food security are at the forefront of issues for New Zealanders. Across the country, hundreds of thousands of hectares of fertile land has been built upon as our cities have grown, rendering the land unusable for future food production. Late last year, the government released its national policy statement for highly productive land. And with this had the objective to protect our most productive land, though in circumstances where less productive land is not available, urban housing may still be built there. While they're vying for the same finite space, is there any way for housing and food production to go hand in hand, or is it one or the other? Dr Shannon Davis is a senior lecturer in landscape planning at Lincoln University. She specialises in urban agriculture and has recently led a project on so-called peri-urban potential with our land and water. This is the group tasked with enhancing the productivity of New Zealand's primary sector while maintaining and improving the quality of the country's land and water for future generations. It's a science challenge. So what's the definition of highly productive land? What's driving its loss? Traditionally, New Zealand cities, you know, like cities throughout the world, have been located uh, strategically on those highly productive soils and those areas in the landscape that have um, good access to water, have um, good climates for growing food. You know, that's why cities were located where they are, because they had resources that would support the population um, that would grow in the cities. So the issue that we're seeing in New Zealand, um, like around the world, is the city, our cities are expanding, our population is becoming more urbanised and there is a real need for more housing. Um, And the traditional approach to housing in Aotearoa is through um, urban expansion, so often through greenfield residential development, uh, which is seeing those most productive soils that are located on the edges of our cities um, being eaten up and consumed by urban development. So our research has really looked at... um, The potential of what we call the peri-urban zone, which really is just the the land that sits at the edges of our cities between the urban zones and the rural zones. Um, We've been looking at the potential of that zone to accommodate both housing growth, um, but also the retention and protection of those of those um, our most highly productive soils so that we can retain them for food production. What are your thoughts on the national policy statement itself? Does it address this rapid um, diminution or um, loss of the most productive soils and land? Uh, or, or is it more kind of a an overview, overview ambition? Will it, will it lead to change? Yeah, we certainly hope so. I mean, it is a tricky space. And New Zealand, um, you know, needs... We're in a, a house, you know, what's been termed a housing crisis, and um, we need more houses. We need more affordable housing, and of course, the most economical way of building those houses is through greenfield expansion, where there is easy access to existing infrastructure. So, we have a, um, you know, a bit of a tension at the moment between the national policy statement on highly productive land, which is um, mandated to protect those, our most productive soils. And then we have the National Policy Statement for Urban Development, which is requiring councils to uh, remove restrictive barriers to, to housing growth. So it's an interesting space to be working in. And I suppose that is that was really where the research um, was situated. It was how can we design the edges of our cities to accommodate both? And what are 
people's feelings about that. So we we set about um, surveying residents who live in the peri-urban zone around what they like and don't like about living near food production landscapes. And we also surveyed growers and farmers who are operating the enterprises uh, within that zone as well. So what did your research tell you? Because it's attitudinal research in the first instance. And what did you learn from it? Yeah, so um, some of the basic findings were that the um, the residents who live on the edges of our cities um, in our peri-urban settlements um, and out in that peri-urban zone, they, they all, overall feel extremely positively about living near food production landscapes. They, they value the food production. They value the farmers and the growers operating, um, growing that, you know, nutritious, healthy food. Um, it wasn't so positive. The, the survey didn't yield such positive responses from growers and farmers. They obviously um, face some difficulties of operating close to where people are living. And I think that was um, one of the key one of the key components of that national policy statement on highly productive land was the acknowledgement that we have some reverse sensitivity issues in Aotearoa. So reverse sensitivity um, refers to where you've got an existing land use, so in this case agriculture and food production, and then you have a new land use come in, and um, in this case residential development, and the two land uses are not always compatible side by side. Um, so we were really asking questions around what residents do like about living near those productive landscapes, those landscapes that are producing our food and what they don't like. Um, and being situated in the School of Landscape Architecture, the research then took on a, um, a, a, a spatial component. So we actually looked at some of those land use scenarios between where housing um, could be developed and where food production um, could be uh, retained and how those two land uses would be integrated and how they would be connected. Could you give us some examples? It's interesting you talking about um, that rubbing up between um, the traditional use of an area and then its its urbanisation or its population. We've all heard the stories of the um, you know the townies who move into a, an agricultural or a horticultural area and put in their little lifestyle block and then start complaining about the fact there's noise and the smells and the <laughs> early starts. Yeah. When you're talking about the peri-urban area, are, are you talking about what we've seen, say, in South Auckland with that massive expansion of big urban suburbs uh, onto what was formerly um, mainly uh, horticultural land, actually, but also agricultural land? Could you give us some examples of what you're referring to as the peri-urban environment? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. Um, defining the peri-urban zone itself is... Um, you know, it's a it's a big question in of itself. So traditionally, the peri-urban zone has moved and changed with the expansion of cities. Um, so as the city has expanded, the peri-urban zone has just it's just been shifted in alignment with with the expansion of cities. So it really um, what we're talking about really is is the edges of our cities. There's a, there's a, there's a classic that, that, in, that in occurs Auckland. to me, Shannon, sorry to interrupt you, but there's a classic that occurs to me not far from where you're living and working, beautiful part of the country that it is, Lincoln. 
with, with what happened um, in Christchurch, with Ralston becoming a, a much, much more urbanised centre. Now, that happened by necessity, right? Um, the eastern suburbs were lost in, in the earthquake, and, we, and, and, and new and quite dense um, developments had to happen. But is that the kind of an example? The fringes of Christchurch are actually a very good example. Yeah, exactly. And that that is actually where our case study research was situated. So we were looking at the Salwyn district, which forms much of the south and um, southwest of Christchurch city. So we the survey was located um, in and around Darfield, Rolleston and Lincoln. Mm. So, yeah, we we very much have a um, a tension of land use down here where we have um, substantial population growth in those peri-urban settlements um, and and they're located on, on some of New Zealand's most productive soil. So it's a great location to be doing this research and to be looking at these um, these issues. And so back to the attitudes, as I said, the common perception is it's often um, the, I'll call them the townie, right, who's gone to live in the country, mm. who's perceived as being the, you know, suddenly complaining about chickens or whatever. But what you're saying is, in, in the survey you did, the residents themselves were by and large positive about having farming right next door. There's a disconnect between their perception and the farmers' perceptions themselves. And is that because there has been some conflict or is it because the farmers just became worried that there would be an issue over them carrying out their operations? Can you explain? Yeah, I think it it probably comes down to communication and that was something which came out of the research we did is that there is a real desire from both groups to have better communication um, and and to be more connected. So um, you're, you're very right in talking about some of those nuisances that uh, residents talk about or we hear in the media around um, smells and noise you know during the pea harvest season with tractors working all night and um, things like that what we found in the survey was that residents really um, were quite happy to put up with some of those uh, those nuisances I suppose is the word Um, but they wanted some benefit as well and so one of the main points that came out of the work we did was that Residents are wanting to access the food being produced over their back fence um, more easily. So, so they're, they're happy to put up with some of those um, those nuisances if they can, if there's a trade-off, if there's a benefit of being able to access the food. And and one of the strong narratives that came out of the research we did was that residents struggled to actually access the food and to get to know the farmer and to to be connected to those who are growing the food. So I think um, it came out in both sides of the survey, both the one with the growers and farmers themselves and with residents around needing or wanting more connection between residential dwellers and the um, people producing our food. That's so interesting. For, for a number of reasons. I mean, one is we do live in a country that is a brilliant food producer and yet we pay world prices often for, for some of these products in supermarkets. That's, a, that's another matter. But how interesting that they wanted the likes of markets or, I don't know, when you, when you go to some long-established uh, agricultural horti- horticultural service towns, you know, you, you can stop and buy the fruits in an honesty box somewhere or, you know, th- there's, a, there's a very popular local market. And is that necessarily yes. just about 
accessing the food? Or is that about the person-to-person contact between the grower and the buyer? Yeah, I think it's both. I think um, the the residents really valued being able to pro- um, purchase the locally produced food. So, so farm gate sales and farmers markets and um, um, veggie box sales, you know, from their local grower. Those were all things that were talked about incredibly positively um, from the residents, and and very happy to. Um, to be putting up with some of those slightly more negative things if that was the outcome, you know, if they were able to access that healthy food, they were able to be connected to the farmer, their children were able to see food being produced, um, which all comes down to to that um, passive education, that passive agricultural literacy, which potentially, um, like you say, New Zealand's this, um, you know, we're a big producer on the world market for um, food, but we have a disconnection, surprisingly, between our urban population and our um, food producing um, or food producers. Shannon, what else did you learn about uh, attitudes as you dealt, delved a bit deeper as well? Because there were some uh, aspects of farming production that you found that the um, domestic residents did not like. And does this come back to the way we typically farm? size of farms and, and farm practices. What attitudinal stuff did you find on that? Yeah, so um, like I said, the residents generally were were very happy to put up with some of those um, lesser issues, the nuisances. Um, what they weren't so happy about was putting up with um, some of the, the more heavy impacts on hum- what they perceived on um, human health and on the health of the environment. So um spray drift, um, fertiliser pluming, the use of chemicals close to schools and close to where they were living. Those were those were issues which were brought up in the residence survey of where people were not happy. Um, so that actually, the second part of the research was actually taking the, um, the issues that were identified in the survey and then actually saying, well, how could we design the peri-urban zone differently? How could we do this differently so that we can mediate between, um, so that we can get the best really uh, out of this people production uh, relationship which happens in our peri-urban zone. So how can we keep farming and keep growing food happening close to where people are living but in a in an acceptable way to, to the residents who are living close to that? That's interesting. And this brings us to this concept of low-impact farming. Uh, And this actually emerged from feedback coming out of the urban dwellers in the peri-urban zone. Can you explain? Yeah, so that was one of the um, solution spaces that came out of directly from the residents themselves, where many residents were talking about buffers in different ways. Um, So the low-impact farming belt was the intention of that was keeping the growing of kai and food close to housing, close to the residents, but farming in a way which was that had less impact on human, on you know, on some of those perceived issues around human health and environmental health. So um, the low impact farming bout was small scale farming. Uh, it was diverse food production types. It was 
uh, low artificial impact um, input farming, things like that. So it, it, it effectively was creating a buffer around a housing area before you moved out into that larger scale, what we might call conventional export orientated food production. How realistic is that given the current design of our uh, peri-urban landscapes. As you said, much of this happens incidentally and it's often the urban area coming further and further into what had been traditionally horticultural or agricultural areas. Can you retrofit a buffer of the kind that the urban dwellers were recommending? Yeah, I think so. I think there's there's still there's loads of potential and um, it's been identified you know, as an issue through this national policy statement. So I think, um, yeah, the, we we need to look at this positively and look at um, what our systems allow, our planning systems, and, you know, make changes to those potentially to allow um, or to direct uh, land use, which is more conducive um, to, to one another. I, I think ultimately the, the findings of the research were that food production is vitally important to New Zealand as a whole and to the communities that live near the food producing landscapes. We just need to um, to potentially design it slightly differently to what we're doing at the moment where we have large scale uh, export orientated farms butting up against housing. I mean, that, that's basically where we were seeing most of those reverse sensitivity issues being talked about. What did the... Uh farmers and, and producers say about this idea of a low-impact farming buffer? And again, I'm not sure how you retrofit it when it may compromise some of their existing land. That said, there are many farmers looking at uh, new ways of, of doing agriculture, or at least on part of their operations looking at new ways of doing agriculture. Did you get any feedback from, uh, from the farmers? Yeah, so um, probably just to put a little bit of context around that, we mostly, we were surveying um, growers and farmers who were already operating in that peri-urban zone and who were um, distributing their food through farmers markets. That's how we made contact with them. Uh-huh. So so we didn't engage um, in this part of the research with yes, with some of those large-scale export-orientated farmer, um, growers and farmers. But the feedback that we did receive through the grower-farmer survey was that there was a real appreciation of from those growers and farmers living near residential communities in terms of the, the, the benefits that were seen on the growers' side as well. So things like... Um, you know, having fast internet speed and having good access to urban infrastructure um, were, were seen as really positive things, as was the opportunity to connect with their consumers. That was another really strong narrative that came out of the survey. Um, so I do think there, there's more research that needs to be done in this area around um, those, yeah, the reverse sensitivity issues and the consideration of some of those issues with the larger-scale farming enterprises that we have occurring. Which leaves me wondering if this is a way forward, that we have planning rules that kind of gradate or somehow regulate the type of farming that can happen on the borders of urban areas and appreciating some of that um, large commercial farming will already be in place. 
Uh, we are then again looking at planning laws, and we reference the national policy statement, which says we have to start to protect these highly uh, high quality soils. Um, are we looking at the potential for areas that it might not be a no go to farming, um, or a no go, or it may be a no go to um, urbanisation? It may be a no go mm. to intensive farming, and we may have more kind of buffer areas of this less intensive farming um, up against the yeah. urban areas. Is that what you're beginning to visualise? Yeah, one of the discussion points um, uh, that came out of the research um, was around whether whether we create a, a peri-urban zoning. Um, so in New Zealand, we have urban zoning and we have rural zoning, and we don't have a flexibility in a in a in a peri-urban zone, which which might look specifically at some of those. Um, more desirable or appropriate farming approaches within that zone. I think also it um, it, it comes down to land use design as well and, and being able to be flexible with that. So the low impact farming belt was one of the ideas that came out of the research, um, but there was also um, ideas around integrating period than farms or, or just farming enterprises into public green spaces. Um, there were ideas around creating a publicly accessible green belt around housing areas, which would include food production, but at a lesser scale. So things like community gardens and allotments, um, but would also include recreational spaces, um, stormwater management areas. So there were lots of ideas that came out of the survey, which, which would moving forward, I think, be nice to explore further and actually how we would look at implementing some of those ideas through policy. Which is fascinating, a fascinating time to pivot to the work you did at Cornwall Park, much beloved, of course, a working farm in the, in the middle of Auckland City and a recreational reserve around it as well. Uh, Auckland right now looking at some of its water management issues for different reasons and rethinking the entire uh, urban layout, not for you know radical... Uh, redesign, but for the way one part talks to another part in, in the sense of, of nature, movement of water, all of these things. What was the work mm. you did at Cornwall Park? Yeah, that was a really fascinating study. Um, when I first started looking at this question around why we design cities now that don't include a provision for food production, um, the, the research that I was reading of of studies that um, had been done around urban agriculture and cities that were producing food themselves, um, there there are pretty much no examples from the global north of the consideration of animal-based urban agriculture. Um, so that was really the incentive to do this study at Cornwall Park because it's such a wonderful example um, of a global north case study where a working farm that was animal-based um, was included in a public green space. So we, um, as a way of contributing to the international literature around how cities might think not just about reintegrating plant-based agriculture into their 
urban environments, but but animals as well. Um, we looked, yeah, we looked at Cornwall Park. So we surveyed the residents who who lived who live around the park, and asked them similar questions around what they like in terms of living near uh, Cornwall Park and the working farm that sits within it. What they don't like. What some of the what were some of the positive experiences they had, and what were some of the negative experiences they had, and, and ultimately what would they change if if there was change to happen. Um, and overwhelmingly, the residents felt extremely positive to towards having the grazing animals within Cornwall Park. Um, it was in, it was heartwarming reading some of their responses, um, and I was really surprised at the. Um, at the amount of information we got out of that, which just showed how passionate and positive residents did feel towards the animals. So, um, yeah, we published a paper on that, which really provided a, um, a really successful example of how animal-based urban agriculture had been integrated into you know, New Zealand's largest city. Can we just come back to where we started, which is the rate at which we are losing this highest-grade, highly productive soil? And... Can you quantify and can you explain the rate at which it is being lost? And it, it cannot be replaced, right? We're, we're not talking about what some of us do, going down to the local garden centre and trying to build up a backyard garden. This, this is uh, a quality of soil that cannot be replaced when lost. Yes, yeah. And, and that is the foundation. It is a really serious issue because... Um, we're basically taking that resource away from future generations to be able to grow food in our most highly um, productive soil um, that is close to where people are living. So um, 15% of or approximately 15% of New Zealand soils are classed as um, being of the highest of high quality. Only 4% of our soils are classed as in that highest category. So it is a really um, important issue to be looking at now because the, the rate of loss of those soils is substantial um, as our cities sprawl. And that is Shannon Davis. Dr Shannon Davis, Senior Lecturer in Landscape Planning at Lincoln University, specialising in urban agriculture.